Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I think my eventual aim is to be able to feel completely alone around other people. When I'm noticing other people, when I don't want to, it's from a place of anxiety. When I'm noticing them and I do want to, that's curiosity. Like, I don't mind at all when I'm lost in my thoughts and then I see a really cool pair of shoes and then I'm drawn to them. But when I'm snapped out of my thoughts by just the sudden approach of someone, I, I don't like that constant state of fearfulness. My body is primed for attack in ways that I maybe wouldn't alone in my apartment because nothing is particularly going to snap me out of it. Hi, and welcome to Alonement, the podcast about time alone and why it matters. I'm Francesca Spector, host of this podcast and author of Alonement, a book based on this very show. I'm also a reformed extreme extrovert who a few years ago, discovered the life-changing benefits of spending time alone. Each week, I interview someone I'm curious about to discover what solo time means to them. In every conversation, we celebrate the unique benefits of time spent alone, regardless of your age, life stage, or relationship status. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. This week's guest is author Nisha Dolan. I'm absolutely thrilled to have Nisha on this season. She is widely considered one of the millennial generation's most talented writers. Ever since her Sunday Times bestseller debut novel, Exciting Times, which was published in 2020, it's currently being adapted into an Amazon Studios TV production starring Phoebe Dernavar. So that's pretty good for your first novel, isn't it? We're here to discuss her. We're here. We're here to discuss. It's currently being adapted into an Amazon Studios TV production starring Phoebe Dernavar from Bridgerton. So, yeah, not bad for your first novel. We're here to discuss her hotly anticipated follow up, The Happy Couple, which is sort of an anti rom com, counting down to the wedding of a boy and a girl who probably shouldn't get married. During this recording, we chat about Nisha's experience of being an expat in Berlin, where she's lived less than a year. Fans of Nisha, who is originally from Dublin, will know that she is no stranger to the experience of living abroad. Her first book, Exciting Times, was heavily inspired by her own expat experience living in Hong Kong, while she's also lived in Singapore and Italy. 
From an alone time perspective, this is an interesting position to be in. And Nisha describes how this sense of being a foreigner has enabled some of that incredibly perceptive social observation that her writing is famous for. We also discuss Nisha's autism diagnosis and how it might or might not reflect itself in her writing. Plus, whether framing writing as neurodivergent in the first place is useful. I'm going to stop summarising our conversation at this point and let you hear the real deal. But suffice to say, I had a great time recording. I found Nisha incredibly thoughtful and intelligent. She has a dark sense of humour, which I really appreciate. And she has one of the best laughs, probably the best laugh I've ever heard on this podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This season is brought to you by West Lab, the UK's number one trusted bath salts brand. Their best-selling Dead Sea bath salt range contains minerals that come from the famous waters themselves. Fun fact, it's actually a lake, not a sea, that's found in the lowest point of the earth and was the world's first spa, visited by Cleopatra herself. Dead Sea Salt is a skin hero containing a unique blend of magnesium, calcium and potassium, which is brilliant for protecting and repairing your skin barrier and managing conditions like eczema, psoriasis, acne and sensitive skin, together with soothing any aching muscles. I'm also kind of in love with magnesium for its mood balancing qualities. It's nice to think that your mind and body are being looked after while you're soaking there in the tub. West Lab Dead Sea Bath Salts are vegan, cruelty-free and suitable for the whole family, including babies aged three months and up. Use the code ALONEMENT15 for 15% off when you spend £10 or more. T's and C's in the show notes. So you're living in Berlin at the moment, I've seen from the press that you've been doing around your new book, The Happy Couple. How, how long has it been the case that you've lived there? Since last July, so around 10 months. How's that experience been? How's Berlin treating you? I really like it. It's a very mind-your-own business kind of place, but equally there's always plenty to observe, precisely because it's a mind-your-own business place. People act on the assumption that no one is particularly watching or monitoring them, and so you can see plenty of weird shit if you're nosy, but equally <laughs> nobody's going to be very nosy about you. So it's a writer's paradise, like people watching for days. That's so interesting. And where's your favorite spot to people watch? I really love the canal and that's such a non-specific location. It's like then you love the canal in London, but really anywhere along it because like first of all, water is always a charming presence and also all the tiny birds. I love the way their heads switch and I like watching people walk their dogs and speculating about what made this person choose this kind of dog. So it, there is plenty to observe along the canal. I guess that's true in every city, but definitely in Berlin. Uh, and we're here to discuss novel two, but I'm sensing that novel three might be set in Berlin. Say Madden. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Keeping my eyes peeled for that announcement. And, and so how has your time in Berlin been from the perspective of alone time? Moving to a foreign country is not new for you. You've lived in Hong Kong and Singapore, I believe, as well as living in Berlin now. How has this experience of sort of expat solo living been for you? Really nice, actually, um, because of the self-reparenting experience of learning a new language, because 
wherever you are, you're going to have insecurities about how you come across and whether you're communicating what you want to communicate. And the best way to avoid that is by never leaving your hometown. But even within your hometown, (laughs) certainly I found you're still going to worry how you come across. So to have this useful thing to constantly blame for me is actually quite reassuring and therapeutic. Like, oh, it was just my German. Oh, it was just my German. As opposed to, oh, it was me as a person. Oh, it was me as a person. So yeah, I, I think there's always going to be friction between person and environment. And when you can blame the friction on something else, in some ways it makes it easier. That's really interesting, actually. I never really thought about it like that. I think people say it's a cliche, right? To say you can be lonely in a crowded room. Less so a cliche to say you can be lonely in your sort of hometown or your <laughs> your familiar surroundings. And yet, I think we all know that that's a universal experience, that friction we sometimes feel about fitting in. So to think that, I don't know, there's a normalization that feels comforting about moving to a a different country and having something to scapegoat almost. Yeah, totally. Like in Germany, it's considered quite rude not to make eye contact with someone after you've toasted together. And I learned this real and realized that a lot of people had been presumably giving me foreigner slack on this count because I definitely had not done the eye contact when they did that. But then I thought, hang on, is that a norm in Ireland or not? And I couldn't remember. So quite possibly, I have also offended many Irish people by not doing this. And they definitely wouldn't have been cutting me foreigner slack. So yeah, I'll take the foreigner slack if it's going. And I want to pick up on what you said um, before about the eye contact in Berlin and how that's become something you're noticing being there. Because you've spoken a lot about being diagnosed with autism at the age of 27 and you've done a lot of interviews about that there's something you describe called masking which is hiding or disguising your natural responses in order to act like a more neurotypical person whatever that is uh and in a piece for the times you said that that masking is something that autistic women quite often will do and that they often end up being the most socially intelligent people because they're so often watching the people around them. Have you found yourself having to make those mental leaps or having to observe more about the people around you being in this strange new city that you've lived in less than a year? I suppose it's difficult to disentangle from cultural considerations that anyone would make. So for instance, especially in the former East Germany, smiling too often will get you perceived as a simpleton. (laughs) It's just not as as smiley a culture as America. And the stereotype that many Germans have of Americans is that they're they're always smiling for no good reason. And of course, Americans are the precise opposite, opposite stereotype of Germany. I think probably the UK and Ireland are somewhere in between there on the smiling scale. But... Then where do you draw the line between that, which probably anyone would notice and care about, and the level of thought that I might put into it about how much should I then smile? (laughs) And yeah, I I, I suppose autism is a factor, but not the factor in that. Yeah. I mean, you you are very interested in people generally. You've said before in interviews that for you, relationships, they are the plot of your novels, that that is what fascinates you do you think there's something in your living in different countries that just almost has brings up this new area of interest for you of of observation yeah I think 
having seen how many ways people are fundamentally similar in it probably does center people as a worthy subject in and of itself because I'm under no illusion that specific things are particular to the Irish. Of course, some other things are, but I think the more you've seen patterns and tendencies replicated wherever you go, the more it seems like people are the focus. But I think the greater reason is just that when I'm reading, I'm always looking for the people and I will always find them. And even if there are 40 descriptive passages of something with no people in it at the start of a novel, I will force myself through those to get to the people because the people are what I enjoy in that novel. So I, I then probably don't write the bits that I would tend to skip in someone else's novel. And like, I think that's universal. I don't think anyone deliberately writes material that they would themselves would skip, but we have different bits that we enjoy, I guess. Yeah, I actually, I really relate to that idea of, you know, no matter how beautiful a description is, it will always seem a bit, I don't know, what's the critical word? It will, it will always seem a bit flowery to me if it's not got something animate in it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I sometimes wonder if I'm being ungenerous because my motivation for writing a long descriptive passage would be to impress some creative writing teacher in my head. But that's me. And quite possibly I'm then projecting that motivation onto someone else's prose when for them it's expressing something inside them I I don't know all I know is it's not really my bag although it really depends on the writer like I'm always saying I don't like this or that in fiction but then if someone does it well there's always the exception like Nabokov I would read literally anything by he never needs people to catch my attention although they're always there eventually so if it's good it's going to be good so some writers can do it yeah just write good that that would be my (laughs) writing advice to anyone who wishes to hear what I think You've described how you will stand on the canal and sort of, um, or sit on the canal. Betray this for me, this vantage point that you have on the canal. Will you be sitting in a cafe or sort of walking along? How are you observing people to begin with? When you're oh, walking? well, I swim in the canal. To you're swimming? <laughs> <laughs> with a notepad. No. <laughs> yeah, no, there are, there are various positions that my body finds itself in, in the vicinity of the canal. Um, there are often coffee shops along it and... There is a great love in Berlin of sitting outside whenever you possibly can. I think we have this in common with London that somehow temperatures that in Southern Europe would not warrant this um, are considered virtually tropical in these um, otherwise grim cities. And so, you know, if it's 16 degrees and it's cloudy, people will be like, well, this is a coffee outside day, isn't it? So I, I do that a lot. I also like walking along the canal and... Uh, yeah, sometimes I'll just stand on one of the bridges for ages and watch the water and I suppose just try to notice what's happening in my body and also what's happening around me and keep an alertness of both those things. And it's really nice and soothing and helps me become a bit less obsessed with the past and the future, which are otherwise my harrowing constant concerns. And does that count as alone time for you is that what you consider being solitary or do you need a different kind of it to give you time off from this state of observation I think it depends I I think for me there are two shades of alone time there is alone time where I forget that I exist so when I'm reading a really good book or when I'm writing fiction or even when I'm doing something like yoga and I'm not thinking about me so much as I'm thinking about the instructions and following them, 
but then there's also self-examining alone time. So where I might write in my journal or stand and try to notice how I feel. And I think I need a bit of both really, but I think my eventual aim is to be able to feel completely alone around other people because when I'm noticing other people, when I don't want to, it's from a place of anxiety. When I'm noticing them and I do want to, that's curiosity. Like I don't mind at all when I'm lost in my thoughts and then I see a really cool pair of shoes and then I'm drawn to examine the outfit as a whole or whatever. But when I'm snapped out of my thoughts by just the sudden approach of someone, I, I don't like that constant state of fearfulness. Obviously, you need a degree of vigilance in a big city, but that degree of vigilance is so much lower than the degree that I just natively experience in my body for some reason. So, yeah, I think having other people around me as I try to have my alone time is, and that's a good way to notice the ways in which my body is primed for attack in ways that I maybe wouldn't alone in my apartment because nothing is particularly going to snap me out of it. But still, obviously, subconsciously, I'm braced to hear that sound or whatever. And that's why sometimes I jump at the sound of my boiler. <laughs> because you are so sort of absorbed in that time by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, not entered completely into it or else the boiler just wouldn't bother me like it would register. Alone time more generally, just to sort of broaden that out. What does the word alone historically or even just now mean to you? I think the connotation has definitely changed from a negative to a positive one over the years because when I was a kid, I always felt incredibly isolated. And so finding ways to fill the alone time was a necessity. Whereas nowadays, I could spend all day, every day with people if I wanted. And so the fact that the alone time is a choice makes it much easier to frame it to myself as a treat. So nowadays it's me time. Back then it was um, in dark <laughs> intonation, me time. <laughs> like, oh great, me again. Is that what we're getting? Oh, me again time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Always with the me time. <laughs> we're just always coming out with these beautifully worded phrases. Thank you. It's almost like I'm employed to do so. It's almost like you're a best-selling author. Yeah. <laughs> so why is it your aim to feel alone around other people rather than just feeling alone when you're alone? I think it gives me a lot more control over the situations in which I can be happy. I don't like standing in queues and being annoyed by someone's voice because I'm hungry and there are 20 people in front of me and when's my focaccia coming and whatever. <laughs> so being able to tune in without a will, I think is a good thing to train. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's not so much about people as general external influences. Like I equally would like to be better than I am at drowning out an ambulance outside or what have you. Although I guess to some extent that's always going to be a losing battle. Like there's some things that our nervous system is just designed to notice and that's why they choose that sound for an ambulance so that you won't be able to tune out the ambulance and get run over yeah yeah I mean we're about to get onto the book in a moment but it makes me think what you're saying about being able to disassociate from other people it makes me think of your protagonist Celine in The Happy Couple and how she's able to she's a pianist and she's able to play piano in her head were you projecting if this is sort of superpower that you'd want to be able to do that that state of absorption yeah, I suppose that was a combo of 
how I've gone about teaching myself other things and how I imagine that might apply to a field that I never got truly good at. So anything that I consider myself really good at, I can do in my head on command. And it's a really soothing and fun thing to be able to do. And it also reinforces your knowledge of the thing as you go back your day, because then you don't need to be in this specific setup to actually do the thing. So yeah, and completely... I potentially I'm completely off base about how it would actually look for a musician. But I think it doesn't really matter to me if it's quote unquote accurate or not. It just matters like, does it work in the page? And hopefully it does. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a real tendency sometimes to, I don't know, there's a trap to fall into being an author, writing a book about being an author or a journalist or some sort of writer. So I loved that your, your choice of protagonist there brought so much. So the happy couple is framed around an engagement party and a wedding and as a writer who identifies as queer, what was it that appealed about framing a book around a historically very sort of heterosexual, heteronormative convention? I think initially it was just to give my writing a bit of structure because when I'm writing the first draft of something, there's an element of needing to interest myself. And for that reason, I can't plan too much because if I'm not wondering what will happen next, then I'm not going to be transfixed enough to finish the draft. But equally, if I completely make it up as I go along, then I'm going to have to do a lot of work down the line that I could have avoided having to do by planning a bit smarter up front. So I decided to split the difference by having a big event that it's counting down to. And that way I can still make up things up as I go, but there's going to be inherently something framing it and tying it together. And I think a wedding was just the most obvious thing for characters that age. And that's honestly the reason that I chose it up front. But then as I wrote, I became interested in why that was the default, why that it didn't appear to me that a wedding rather than anything else is the default thing to give people in their late 20s to be organizing towards as opposed to a birthday party or what have you. So yeah, my own snap assumption then became a point of interrogation. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're the same age. I'm 31. I think it would be, yeah, I think we're about the same age. And yeah. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And the 31 club. The 31 it's a, it's a club. It's like the 20 something club. I, I hope 31 is something better in line. At least we didn't fall prey to the poor 27 club coming. <laughs> Hopefully we don't die to begin with. I hope. <laughs> well, I, I think eventually that hope will be dashed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but hopefully we have at least a while. But I, I do think the interesting thing about this early 30s stage is that like 30, you would just spend the whole year trying to justify those, all those people that told you, oh, like you'll turn 30, your brain will totally change and you, you won't care about what anyone thinks and like almost trying to get off on that. 31, you're very much in your 30s. And the reality of that is it's not just a framing device for a book. Your life is punctuated by engagement parties and weddings and those, again, very heteronormative historically situations so it's there's a reason there's so many books framed around around these um marianne keys described your book as nihilistic about heteronormative relationships which you shared on instagram so i'm assuming you quite liked that verdict on the book would you agree with it (laughs) well i think most of all i just appreciated it as a bit of english (laughs) that woman has a matchless way with words but I think the version of nihilism that I subscribe to and support is that you can make of life whatever you want version. And I think nihilism gets a bad rap as being about nothing mattering when it's more like nothing matters and therefore you can choose what will matter to you. So to me, nihilism about heteronormativity is more we have the power to observe what's going on and to to at least some extent, stop doing it if we don't want to. How do you feel about, well, the whole convention of weddings, especially as someone who's now spent quite a bit of time writing about one? Well, I've only actually been to one because around the time my friends started getting married was just when COVID hit. But of the people I know who got them engaged and married, they all seem to be having a great time. But I think that's precisely because it's something that they've chosen and not something that was viewed as mandatory for them. And maybe that's selective. Maybe it's the sort of people that I'm friends with. But while I can't really make a society-wide diagnosis for that reason, I think something that people pick for themselves with a full appreciation of other things that they can do is probably still going to be right for them. It's just if the full spectrum of possibility isn't visible or doesn't seem viable to them, then you see people doing things that they don't really want to do. Do you think that that's the case for your protagonist, Celine? Do you think that the full spectrum of her options is available for her? I guess she's a funny one in that respect, because I think probably her chief problem is that she's not a very detailed or rigorous examiner of her own life. (laughs) I think um, we see her escaping from it in various ways much more than we see her truly putting the spotlight on her choices and 
obviously that's something that's difficult to convey at points because what I was trying to do was nonetheless make the reasons for those choices apparent to the reader without necessarily giving her a, a level of insight that she personally does not have. But I think that's how you end up with these paradoxes where on one level she is completely free to do pretty much whatever she wants, but because of a lack of attention as to how she feels, um, she winds up defaulting into decisions that seem on the face of it bizarre. Have you heard this conversation around main character syndrome at the moment? Um, I've heard the phrase, but I don't know what the conversation specifically is. It's just like everyone thinking that they're the centre of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think your main character lacks main character syndrome herself? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think they've all got main character syndrome in various ways, but I suppose hers manifests as only thinking about the things that are immediately pleasurable to think about and only thinking about anything else for as long as it takes to dispel the bad thought. Yeah. And that inability to sit in discomfort and just accept that it's a thing that you'll have to deal with to work through things then causes her to stay in these cycles where she causes herself long-term way more discomfort than if she just listened to her and think the first time. So I think in that way you can be incredibly self-centered while actually not thinking about yourself in useful ways at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking there's that bit where, spoiler alert, but you know, uh, Luke's gone missing from the engagement party early on in the book and she... She and she sort of reasons. It's very strange. She reasons, oh, but you know, but life is beautiful, and I'll forgive him. And you're reading it, thinking, no, 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 don't do that. But, <laughs> but also, it's so it's if not relatable, definitely it feels like someone, you know, it feels like a friend making poor decisions. Um, it feels very realistic, and I, you know, I think it's interesting because she is someone that is so in love with her art. She plays piano for five hours a day, and the only reason she plays for only five hours is because she's worried she'll get tendonitis if she continues playing for longer. Otherwise, she's always in her head playing piano. We sort of celebrate that absorption as as a good thing. I think an image of someone alone playing the piano, that would seem like a, I don't know, a societally rewarded great state of aloneness, that, you know, a great way to use your alone time. Do, do you think you're sort of almost revealing... I don't know, the, the potential hurdles in that, in being so absorbed in one's art that it can come to the detriment of one's relationships or happiness. I think suddenly there's a failure of imagination in some ways underlying that way of living because surely, given that art is produced as a result of absorbing and synthesizing things that exist in the natural world. The natural world also has that beauty to begin with, right? And I mean the natural world very broadly, like it can mean one sitting room, it can mean even being on one's laptop and that it's a thing that exists. And so if there's only one very specific hobby where someone can enjoy being alive and the rest of it is just treading water, that in some way exposes their limitations and those limitations probably come through in their art also Mm. it's an interesting way to look at it I mean I'm still very jealous of anyone that can play piano but as you say when it's when it's the central thing the central focus in your life it can also come with a sort of risk factor 
And I was intrigued by the fact that she is described somewhere, I think earlier on in the book, as uh, generally a hermit. But somehow she seems unable to be single. Uh, and she, you know, she's in and out of relationships. What interested you about this tension? I think it's another area where her lack of curiosity about life in general really comes to bear because that's what underlies all cliche. I think it's not an active intention to reproduce a cultural image. It's a lack of asking questions that would then reveal the cliche in some way. And so the cliches that Tolene readily subscribes to in her life, like I as a woman need a partner or I as a woman currently with a man to conduct my relationship in the following way are things where that critical thinking goes out the window and where her narrow conception of what it means to be an artist, I I think, comes to bite her. What hole do you think she's trying to fill if she's got already so much absorption in her art? Probably to some extent the relationship with Luke is a result of not truly dealing with the sorrow after losing her ex-girlfriend Maria. Like We do see her processing and dealing with that a little bit, but the conclusion she draws is then she fixed it by finding someone else. And that relationship was rooted in her art, but became unworkable precisely because the partner shared that art was also a pianist. This is identified as a problem that the way they both practice is pretty incompatible in the long term. But then the solution be with someone who is not a pianist and who lets her go through the whole relationship with essentially one foot out (laughs) um, doesn't seem to work too well for her either. Yeah, I noticed a parallel between... Celine and your character Ava uh, in Exciting Times, who is also quite a solitary person who is living in Hong Kong. And she, she's, she's moved from Dublin to Hong Kong. She's got the early loneliness and difficulty of being an expat. And she sort of has the prospect of healthy connections with people from work, with flatmates, but she ditches it in favour of uh, a relationship with Julian, a character who, well, not exactly, like Luke, he, you know, there, there are definitely parallels, perhaps most prominently in the fact they're not particularly nice people sometimes, or certainly the relationship dynamic can be quite unhealthy. Um, do you think there's a, there's a form of self-sabotage in these characters? I suppose considering each of them in turn, I think Ava in Exciting Times has a much more palpable insecurity around not having a thing and um, about, I suppose, her cultural capital in general. And so is drawn to someone who makes her feel intelligent and important and all the rest of it, in some ways precisely because he's not always the nicest guy. I I think for whatever reason, um, someone as young and insecure as her can often associate what's just meanness with intelligence. Although I don't think he's entirely bad either. I, I think probably anyone I spend more than three paragraphs on isn't going to be entirely bad because <laughs> I write with acute awareness that everyone has main character syndrome and nobody is consciously and knowingly the villain. But yeah, with Celine, I'm not sure. Like, I think the thing about self-sabotage is nobody knows that they're doing it in the moment. It's only post hoc we look back and we're like, okay, so doing what was in my best interests would in that scenario have involved a bunch of 
immediate um, cognitive discomfort as I try to do stuff that I'm not used to doing or whatever. And so I just reverted to the old pattern or what have you. But in the moment, I think self-sabotage invariably feels like we're acting intelligently and correctly and in our best interest. So I suppose what unites these women is that some sort of social force and some personal um, cocktail arising from those social forces has convinced these women that something's in their best interest and that's what they believe that they are doing for as long as they are doing it. Not always uncomplicatedly, like not always with an awareness that maybe it's not in their best interest, but they think that what they're doing makes sense enough to keep doing it until it doesn't. So self-sabotage is effectively self-protection, it, albeit self-protection without much thought behind it. Yeah, or self-protection with the wrong kind of thought behind it. Like if there's something else that you want to do, but you obsess over potential negative things that could come from it. I would say Ava is probably more of a a negative ruminator and more of an anxious character, whereas Celine is probably more of a like, don't go there. Yeah. Yeah. Is a more of a sort of a, I don't know, compartmentalizer or even just escapist. Yeah. Like the, um, please update your laptop notification comes up and she clicks away every time until the laptop forcibly <laughs> updates itself at a time that is very inconvenient for her and that she loses a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> Not resonated. to say the metaphor at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's um, that's that's a very universal experience. I thought that's all I can say. <laughs> uh, please update your laptop at tragedy by me today. That'll be the third one. <laughs> be the third one written in Berlin. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this might feel like a weird question because it's hard to say how you would write like anyone other than who you are. But w- what do you think or suspect that your neurodivergent perspective brings to your writing? Yeah, well, like you say, it's difficult to pinpoint because every feature that I would associate with my writing, I can think of a completely opposite writing style that one could also link with that person and being autistic. For So, for example, the fact that my description tends to be quite short and blunt, which one could argue um, mirrors stereotypical autistic communication styles. But equally, if someone had a very sensory writing style where every scent and every touch was lingered over for ages you could say well that's a really autistic writing style because autistic people have more attuned senses or if someone went completely the opposite way and with more Hemingway than me even and had literally none of the sensory stuff then you could say well that's an autistic writing style because some autistic people are hypo as opposed to hyper sensitive so yeah I suppose I would be wary in that sense of pinpointing it on any one thing like I think overwhelmingly, I just see myself as an artist who makes choices and um, selects a particular style because it's the style I want to write in. But what makes it autistic is the fact that it's my autistic brain making those choices. Do you feel like there's a pro to characterizing or even having these conversations of, as you say, like an autistic writing style because it brings attention to the amazing parts of the autistic brain even if that's in two totally different ways i think it depends on the tone and the attention because i'm not interested in arguing for the worthiness of autistic people based on what they can do like that seems to me an inherently ableist way of thinking in itself but on the other hand 
given how long untold numbers of autistic people have spent their whole lives masking without knowing and the amount of energy that has gone into that instead of into doing something interesting and rewarding I think visibility is good and the hope that it will help more people out of that trap and then that will be a benefit to literature generally because for every autistic genius who happens to manage to break through that there are so many more who didn't and who spent their whole lives lying to themselves and to everyone else about who they are in a really tragic way and we will never hear those stories so I hope more of them don't get lost and in that sense I think visibility is really good. Hmm. And and also, I think almost changing perceptions. I think I've, I read in an interview you said that autistic boys they're often seen to be obsessed with numbers, whereas for you, you were fixated on words and, and punctuation, and that comes across so much in your in your in your writing and how it, it almost reframes that level of attention and detail. But as you say, you know, there's not just one specific style of writing. Uh, that comes from having that neurodivergent perspective. It really is just about exploring the different ways and that how that can come across. Yeah, and it's something that benefits really everyone. Like a lot of the men I know who were diagnosed quite late in life also were more on the verbal than mathematical level of fixation of the child and got me to that reason too. So I, I, I think knowledge is never bad, essentially, as long as people are cautious in how they handle it. We're coming to the end, very sadly, of this conversation. But the final question I want to ask you is about specifically alonement. So that's a word that I invented to fill a gap in the English language where we say alone and we mean alone, me time, not, you know, me again time like we were discussing earlier, but conscious, joyful, fulfilling alone time. What does that look like for you right now? I really enjoy drawing for this. I, I think it's the perfect thing where I know enough and can do enough that I feel proud of the result at the end, but I'm not good enough for there to be any sort of urge to improve. Like I'm pleased when I've noticed that I've improved, but I'm not in every turn doubting the last joke that I did or thinking about better jokes that I could have done instead. So it's like if I took a bunch of sleeping pills and then wrote fiction, except I don't need to because I'm bad. And so being bad has, in this case, um, the slightly melodious effect of just taking one sleeping pills. So that's nice. That's amazing. And does that, I don't know, I guess what you're saying is you, you're sort of a, like creating while alluding that inner critic that sort of sits on our shoulder while we're writing something. Is that influenced your writing process at all and made that more of a fluid process? Well, I don't know if I always consider it an inner critic. Like certainly there are points in my writing where I am picking holes in myself in an unhelpful way. But I think more often it's just that I have access to enough terminology and enough examples of how various things have been done that every choice I could possibly make is at every point visible to me. And it's not necessarily unpleasant, but it's a much more higher energy pursuit. And I I think for that reason, it will never be a truly relaxing experience for me because even when it's free of anxiety as such, like even when I don't think that there's any way I could go drastically wrong, still making that choice is a really stimulating thing to do. Whereas when I'm drawing, I'm just kind of happy if it looks good. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I read somewhere in an interview you said that you, because you'd written your first book, Exciting Times, and it, it was a bestseller, you sort of had that, I don't know, I, I don't really know how you referred to it, like be- beginner's mindset or, you know, confidence in your beginner state. And that made you feel more confident trying out other forms of creativity. Has that remained the case? Well, I don't think it's to do with the book selling because that kind of happened too late into my development as a writer to make a difference but I think it's more because I was never in any particular formal creative writing program I had the assumption that everything that I did was going to suck and I never had any expectation that it wouldn't and if it's going to suck up front then there's no point in fixating over something that will happen anyway it's like constantly thinking about the fact that I'm going to die (laughs) so just leave that aside and get on with doing what you want really and that continues to be the case because I think I could write something that was artistically worthless and conceivably as a thing that could happen in the universe it could still sell and so the fact that it is so doesn't really make a difference I still write with the assumption that it's going to suck and therefore I can do what I want. Spoken like a true artist Nisha I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's a creative manifesto if I ever if I never heard one. Thanks, as ever, for tuning in. I feel really privileged to have had the opportunity to catch up with Nisha during her busy book touring schedule. And I hope you had, um, excuse the pun, an exciting time listening to. Until next time, and if you'd like to stay in the fold and hear exclusive behind-the-scenes details about this podcast season, do subscribe to my newsletter at francescaspecter.substack.com. 